Hey everybody, welcome back. This episode sponsored by my amazing patrons on patreon.com slash Rancher and my subscribers on Spotify. Spotify and Patreon now are connected somehow, so if you're a patron on Patreon, you should have access to all the subscription episodes on Spotify. If that's not working, drop me an email and let me know. Don't forget, this is the week uh, for the Wyoming Farm Ranch and Hemp Show in Torrington, Wyoming. I'm going to be there along with my friends, the Harris family from Wild Ass Soap. Speaking of Wild Ass Soap, if you're looking for some products to help wash the dust off and keep you smelling good and looking fine, check out wildassoap.com or click the link in the show notes or show description. And uh, yeah, use the code REBOOT for 10% off your order. The giveaway to the scholarship for the Noble Foundation's Essentials of Regenerative Ranching course on, uh, what was that, October 31st and November 1st in Ardmore, Oklahoma. I'm going to do that drawing and announce the winner on the episode of October 2nd. And the cutoff for entries is going to be September 25th. So that'll be a Monday. The podcast comes out, so you get one last reminder on September 25th. We're going to draw it and uh, announce the winner on October 2nd. That's uh, Noble Essentials of Ranching, Regenerative Ranching. There's a link in the show notes and also a link to sign up for the giveaway. And if that link's not working, it's redhillsrancher.com slash noble. As always, you can find all the links on my link tree. There's a link for that in the show notes as well. My guest today is Jacob Miller. Some of you might know Jacob from Livewire Fence Supply, Livewire LLC up in Nebraska. We talk about that a little bit. So Jacob was down in our neck of the woods to do a couple of coffee shop talks about how to manage through droughts. About, uh, I think it was around almost 80 or 90 of us between two days got to hear Jacob's story. It was really great to have him down here in the Red Hills. So after the second day, we went back to Jacob's little Airbnb and set up around the table and this is what happened. So I'm going to play an ad and then we'll have some music. Here we go. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We're here today uh, sitting in a rental house in Protection, Kansas. I've got all my studio equipment set up on a table and uh, sitting here with Jacob Miller, Aaron Sawyers, and my father, Ted Alexander, as a special guest. And um, Jacob's been here in the area. This is the second day down here. And Jacob's been doing a couple of talks uh, titled Grazing Beyond the Drought. So maybe we'll rehash some of that. Maybe we won't. And the series of talks was put on. Um, well, Aaron, who put on these talks? So these were put on by the Comanche Pool, um, Prairie Resource Foundation. Uh, that's been going on here that I worked with over the last, you know, about ten years since I've been back in the area and extension, and uh, just kind of we talked today the meeting that COVID kind of killed the programs, canceled our speakers one year, and we had the hard time. Uh, getting rolling again. So this is a group I'm really passionate about because they care about the resource in our area, Native Range. Um, so it's nice to get 
Jake, someone that cares from not from here, to come talk and share his experience. Because you know what, you got to be over 150 miles from home to not be considered an idiot when you're talking to a group, something like that. I, I don't know. I usually feel like an idiot no matter how far away I am, but I, I, I heard it was like 50 miles. Like yeah, 50 miles, 50. they'll call you an expert. Well, so, Jacob, welcome to Ranching Reboot. How are you, buddy? Good. Glad to be here. Thank good, you for having me. Good to have you here. We've we've done business uh, for quite a while, haven't we? Yeah. Been, I don't know, probably the last six, seven years anyways, so somewhere in there. So, uh, why don't you... Uh, just, Kind of lead us off a little bit. Tell us where you're. Tell us where you're farming and ranching at, and tell us where you're from. Um, so I'm from Culbertson, Nebraska, southwest corner of Nebraska, um, Hitchcock County. We're basically uh, 30 minutes from north of the Kansas line, and about 60 minutes um, east of the Colorado line. Uh, we're still. Um, we're not in the sand hills or anything. Still good hard clay soils, uh, mostly key silt loams. Um, pretty good ground um like many places rainfalls are a limiting factor so um ranch there with my dad um my wife and two kids and uh got a cow calf operation um run yearlings growing some grazing crops and cash crops um this is the first year for cash crops in quite a while um because we've destocked cows um doing that and then we run the fence supply business and try to keep putting one foot in front of the other Right on. So you were saying this is your first time trying cash crops. Why why did you do cash crops this year? Um, So we've had some cash crops in the past. This is my first corn crop. Um, Last year, um, after going through the driest year in history, we destocked some cows, had extra acres that we wouldn't be able to graze um, grazing crops on this year. So we've put some cash crops in. Uh, We've got, uh, we planted wheat, um, corn, and milo this year. the goal being that we will have some insured crops um, during drought. I'm still a young producer, um, needing to take care of some risk management. So crop insurance is one of the ways I can do that. That doesn't mean we're going to harvest the crops with combines. We can still graze them, um, do whatever we need to do to take care of the cattle. But that's kind of the the route we're going down right now for some risk management. I'm, I'm glad you brought up that you did it mostly for grazing. Cause I was kind of wondering how to get there about it. So why are you trying to graze insurable crops rather than trying to plant a seven way or, you know, a, a BMR sorghum sedan like most people would. Um, for us, the insurable crops. So a year ago, um, we planted about 400 acres of forage sorghum. Um, we didn't do any mixes last year because it was cost prohibitive with the drought. We didn't know what we were going to have. Um, you know, normally we'd get 190 animal unit days an acre. Last year we got less than 10. Ugh. Um, that's that's kind of a big financial hickey when you go put in close to 200 bucks an acre um, into that to establish a crop, and you get 10% you know return of normal. Um, so then we had to destock cows, and we were just out. Um, the guys that had Milo planted they were able to graze the failed milo, get an insurance check, and hold on to some cows if they had enough acres. Uh, so that's kind of the route we're going with the insurable crops. I mean, it, it totally makes sense what you said, that you know, you're going to plant some corn, plant some milo, 
have the insurance man come out come out and look at it and if there's a check you get it if not whatever yep but you're using you're using bovine combines correct and the other option we have too is it's diversity on the place too um say it's a wet year and we grow way more crop than we can graze we can have a neighbor bring a combine over and we can still haul grain to the elevator um or we can bring on you know custom graze some cattle buy some calves or something it just gives us more options um than we had before so we can either, you know, play with our grazing, we can harvest it, we can still graze after we harvest. Um, the one thing we're looking at is if we are, you know, we're actively trying to grow good crops um, so that, you know, like the Milo head, for example, one thing we did this year on one pivot we know we're going to graze, we filled half the no-till drill with Milo, the other half with forage sorghum. We drilled back and forth. We got a 15-foot drill. Um, so when you turn around at the end and come back, you end up with a 15-foot stretch of Milo. 15 feet stretch of forage sorghum. We'll run a cross fence across that. We're going to supplement with protein and try to gain two pounds or better with our yearlings or, you know, wean calves that'll be our yearlings next year, um, grazing all winter doing that. So there's there's some stuff like that we know we're going to graze that we'll play around with a little bit and trying to, um, you know, use those daily moves, use the protein and let these animals make their own ration. So. Okay. Something else I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned daily move, and you talked about your labor situation. It's just primarily you and your wife. Your wife helps out a little bit. So you left home, what, yesterday morning? Yep, left Monday morning about 8 o'clock. And you're not going to be back to work until tomorrow? About Wednesday at noon, yep. So who's moving the cows while you're here? Um, Dad is at home moving stuff right now. So Dad and I each own livestock and equipment. Um, 50-50, dad and grandma own the land base, and I pay rent. Um, so, yeah, right now, my wife's home. She's taking care of the sheep. Dad's watching animals. Um, we're not necessarily doing daily moves right now during the growing season here. Um, but stuff's still getting moved. We've got, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five different herds at the moment. Um, just, you know, we've got heifers that are getting bred. We've got first calf pairs in one place. We've got mature cows in another, a group of heifers we're not breeding, and then some yearling steers. Um, so a big mob would be better, but right now we're sorted into different classes of cattle. Um, the way they're going to be marketed here, starting in the next few weeks, we'll start getting rid of some steers. So that's part of the reason for the groups right now. Um, all those are still getting rotated while I'm gone. You know, before I left, I spent several days, um, or not several days, but days preparing, and then... Sunday, got stuff moved, um, salt and mineral out everywhere, um, did all of that so that as long, you know, dad's checking water because it is 100 plus degrees right now, we're setting heat records at home at the moment, so making sure everything has water, but otherwise, um, they've got the the feed they need, and there's times too, you know, during the winter, if I'm going to be gone for a day, um, we've got flexibility built in. I can build a paddock two and a half times the size of a daily one, and they'll be fed for two days. They'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I was kind of more wondering if you used any automatic fence lifters or openers or if there's any you've tried and liked. Um, at this point, I've really not done much with them personally. Um, the bat latch has been our go-to if we do use something. Um, but honestly, I have not used one enough to get the cattle trained and do it. Um, we were going to last year. I was going to use it some more because we were looking at doing maybe um, two to three times a day moves. During the drought, then we ended up destocking um, more than I was hoping we were going to, so we didn't end up doing it. Um, 
but that's something we're still looking at. You start trying to put weight on calves and maybe we need to move more than once a day to accomplish our goals at a better cost of gain. Um, but I can tell you, I'm not going to go set up fence more than once a day. Right. So that's when we'll start using those. I was going to say, that's why bat latches are cool. Cause you can go one time and set up four or five or, you know, however many latches you've got for, you know, daily moves or four or five, you know, daily right. moves ahead of time. And another place that I think they fit in very well, um, if you're grazing something green, you start looking at peak photosynthesis of the plant. It happens during the heat of the afternoon. That is when the animal's going to get the most benefit. Yes. I'm a fat guy. I don't build fence in 100-degree weather. <laughs> so I build fence when it's cool in the morning. The cattle can move themselves in the middle of the afternoon if they want to go graze then. So there's other tools like that, too, because um, generally the way my day's structured typically is I try and take care of all the animals in the morning. In the afternoon's kind of the time to take care of live wire fence supply stuff. It's um, always good to go hide in the office when it's 107. <laughs> right. Um, sometimes it turns into a sweatshop, and I'm in the 120-degree shop building chargers or whatever, too. But that's how it goes. So, Okay. I'd like to take, take just a step back. You were talking about, you know, the ownership structure and, and with your parents. Can you go back over some of that again and maybe talk about how, how the succession plan has, has operated over the last 10 years? Yeah. So over the last 10 years, um, this is year number 10 of me being home from college. Um, prior to coming home from college in 2013, I had started buying, um, you know, some bread heifers and stuff was kind of getting bought into the operation before I came home. So when I came home from college, I had, um, you know, about 40 head of cows of my own that I owned at that point. And working for dad and grandpa, I had basically, you know, paid for my rent just in labor. Um, we did it that way. So then 2013, when I came home, um, grandpa retired. I bought his half of the cow herd, um, bought his half of the equipment, and rented his half of the land base that we use. Um, so the way everything is structured is that dad and I each own half of the cows personally, half of the equipment, and we each, you know, make up half of the total land base value for the year. Any checks that come in, we split down the middle half. Um, and all of the land that we're using pretty much, um, up until February, my wife and I were able to buy a quarter of ground. Um, but other than that, all the land we use except for a few hundred acres um, will be what my dad has um, when grandma's gone. So we should be operating on the land base that we should have um, for the foreseeable future. So since you came back to the ranch in 2013, I was 10 years ago. Yep. How, how have things changed um, with that situation since then? And what, what have you guys done to help make it better? Um, in that time, um, probably the biggest thing, just the first couple of years was, you know, we'd always worked together my whole life, obviously, but it wasn't every day, all day. Um, so part of figuring out who's taking care of what, now now we just know that there's certain ground I take care of if there's cows there, certain stuff dad takes care of. I've got pivots I run, there's pivots he runs, we do the maintenance on each of the ones we run. So we kind of each have our own little mini operation that we take care of to benefit each other when bigger things are done we need done, we get together and do those. Um, so that was one of the bigger hurdles was just figuring out who's doing what so we know to what to expect from one another. Um, 
and the other things we've done too, I mean, we've built more fences since I've been home. Um, we rotate more frequently, but part of that was building intentional fences so that one man can round up a herd somewhere, you know, get some in, sort bowls off or whatever. And we've tried to make things simpler to do um, for one person. As far as the financial end of things go, um, most of the places that we do business with know to send checks to me, checks to dad, know to send bills, split bills half and half. There's still some bills that um, uh, my mom pays their bills, um, does their bookkeeping. My wife uh, came home from her town job a couple years ago, so now she's doing our bookkeeping. Um, so I sit down and go through the bills and make sure, you know, who's paying half of what or if I need to pay all, give those to my wife. She gives them to my mom. Take care of the financial stuff on that end. So, What I kind of want to know what weird stuff you've tried that he freaked out about and didn't want you to do. Sheep. Um, <laughs> and there's there's days that it has been a complete train wreck with the sheep. Good. Let's talk about your sheep project. Um, yeah. So <laughs> you open you opened the can of worms. I want to talk about your yep, sheep project. So kind of the way the conversation went with dad. Well, there really wasn't a conversation because I knew that it wasn't going to be a good one. <laughs> so I kind of just brought some sheep home. Um and then uh so we're on our second round of sheep. The first ones I brought home, uh, we were doing some stuff with them. The Coyotes absolutely annihilated us. We had 27 lambs born and we weaned seven. Ooh. They ran down full-grown ewes and killed them. Wow. So we got rid of sheep um, for a few years, got some fences built, got sheep again here in the last year and figured out we don't have enough fence built. Okay. Um, so we're still going through the phase of figuring out how we want to run them what we want to do with them. And then we bought commercial use um, July of 2022. And they are good enough commercial use. But then we brought in some blackhead dorper embryos um, from Australia. And those lambs that were born about the same time from the, from the Australian embryos are easily gaining double what our commercial lambs were on the same plane of nutrition. Why do you think that is? Genetics. Um, it, it's a lot the same as cattle genetics are. They came from a climate that was harsher than we have here. Um, and I would say that they are more, it's more of a business there than a lot of operations are here. So a lot of them have animals that have to perform. Um, and then the commercial genetics here have been pretty diluted in my mind. Um, there's a lot of, you know, backyard sheep ranchers, which I am 100% guilty of right now. Um, we've just kind of got stuff out there and we're doing it. Um, but just finding that genetic potential and I'm not a big genetics guy. Um, I'm more about grazing and how to, how to do things with what you've got. But at some point, if you give up half your performance on the same plane of nutrition, you're, you're missing out because those lambs didn't eat any more, um, than the ones that weren't gaining the weight either. Right. Right. So that's kind of where we went there. Um, we just brought some ewes in from California. We got five of those from California. Um, they all originated from these same Australian genetics. Um, so we're we're kind of trying to go back to the main source of that. Um, part of that, too, is the phenotypical look of them. Um, they are deep. They are wide. They're the first time I've seen sheep with a brisket that protruded out like a cow. Um, so on our cattle, we've, we've pretty much had to close our herd, 
we keep line breeding the stuff that works for us. And we've built an animal that has a different shape than anything before. And these sheep have the same shape as the animal that works. Um, just, you know, with a bigger middle in them, um, deep, they carry the condition all the way down um, to the bottom of their ribs instead of just along the top line. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of indicators I've seen like that that look like they're going to be animals that should perform the way we want them to, just grazing 365 days a year. So. I think it's interesting, the, the comment you made, and I, and I wrote down that Australia has more working farms and ranches than hobbyists. And, you know, when you think about Australia, you think about, you know, they've got these big, big stations. You know, they've got one that's bigger than Rhode Island. You know, they've got some that are bigger than the wildfires that we've all lived through in the last five years. And I, and you're right. They do approach it as a business and there's virtually no livestock owning as, as hobbyists. There's no, maybe I'm talking out of my ass, but it doesn't seem like there's livestock showing or like a 4-H program in Australia like there is here that encourages people to keep livestock. And I'm not saying that I'm discouraging people to keep livestock, but you know, it, everybody, their brother and their dog thinks they're in the seed stock business. Yep. If you've got three in your backyard, you think you're in the seed stock business. And, you know, I, I know everybody's heard me say it. I say it all the time. You can feed condition and fertility into anything. And when you've got three in your backyard, you're feeding a lot of condition into them. And who knows about your fertility? Cause you're probably not keeping track. But when you've got, you know, big ranches like up in the sand hills or down here in the red hills or huge cattle stations in Australia, we need functional animals. We need functional animals that perform in our environment to the best of their genetic ability, not that are going to be survive in our environment and do well in an artificial environment like a feedlot. Right. So Aaron, I, I know you've got some experience with sheep. Do you have anything to say? We've had some of the same wrecks. Uh, yeah, Jake, pull, pull it up closer, man. Jake uh, came out and just glanced through the remnants of my sheep herd today. Okay. They're phenotypically not what I want totally, but they're survivors. Um, the fencing thing, I'm working on a uh, brand new five-wire fence. If I make the bottom wire hot, I can keep a U in as long as I have good groceries. The first day that I don't, she'll duck that wire somehow you know, skin up her back, and one sheep gets out. Every sheep is out. Goats, when we had goats, one goat would be out, ten goats would be in, three goats would be on the car, you know, <laughs> whatever. Sheep, it's easy. You find one, you usually find all of them. Yep. Um, so I, I've been more of a, a different approach of, um, I started my sheep herd from Gail and Lynette Fuller. Okay. Similar environment, graze, minimal supplement. But bringing sheep from east to west was hard on the sheep. I think it'd be easier to go the other way. Maybe I don't. I don't know. I, I think it's easier for an animal, especially a ruminant animal, to go from a worse environment to one that's better. And you know that's part of my philosophy right. of the Corrientes. You know, desert Southwest, northern Mexico, four hundred years. Yeah, this is could be pretty lean country. Garden Eden. And yeah, it, to them. <laughs> it should be, especially this year, the rain we've had in the last, you know, since the beginning of June. Uh, yeah, like, but what we have left is the ewes that got bred on Tettle 
probably kick me under the table. I got some free old world blue stem hay that's like six years old, and I fed it on cropland to add carbon. And the ewes, you know, they did okay, but it wasn't good enough uh, nutrition to have them cycling properly. And we had our worst lambing rate ever, which just meant more coal ewes that went to the sale last week. So other than losing a water pump on the way to the sale, it was going to be a profitable day. You would have lost the water pump whether you went to the sale yeah. or not. Yep. At least you were doing something that made you a little bit of money when yeah. it broke. Yep. Usually I'm just doing something that costs more money mm. when my crap breaks. Yep. So you're talking about shape and phenotype shape. So, and it's also related to cows. My friend Steve Campbell likes to talk about the red solo cup cow, which doesn't have anything to do with the color. It's just the shape. You want your, you want your bulls, you want your males to be, you know, inverted. So you want, you want to be big in the front, small in the back. You want them to look like they're walking uphill on level ground. And you, you want the opposite for your cows, right? You want your cow to look like she's got a big butt, you know, good guts, narrow shoulders, and look like she's walking downhill. Is that kind of what you're looking for in sheep? Exactly the same thing. Yep. Um, which was really hard for me to grasp because I had not seen sheep in America that looked that way. Um, I went to... You don't see too many cows in America that look like red solo cups. No, either. you don't. Um, you build them yourself if you want to see them. He sees more than you and I do because Sandhills country has a different cow than we have. Yeah, I, there is that. There's probably more ranches up there that have kept on replacements and kept genetics. You know, it, when you hear Nebraska, you think corn. Mm-hmm. But that's really not the way it is. I mean, it seems like the corn is just kind of on the east and in that narrow flat valley. And the whole... You know, central and, and northwestern Nebraska is all sand yeah, hills. Basically the basically the west two thirds and the north, you know, north of the Platte Valley is all pretty much um there is, you know, plenty of irrigated crop ground scattered through there, plenty of dry land. Um, but that is farmers with cows there, ranches up north of the Platte Valley. Um it's just about the eastern third of the state that is the real corn belt of the state. So Okay. So are you anywhere close to, well, you, we know you're not close to the Less Hills, are you, or, uh, Le, yeah, Sand Hills. You're not by the Sand Hills. Are you, are the Less Hills back to the east of you? Yep, they're going to be back to the east. Um, Sand Hills are about an hour north of us. They'll start around North Platte. I'm asking because I'm asking about your cedar tree problem. Cedar trees, yep. Um, so some of the, you know, kind of the Maywood Curtis area. Um, you start getting into some of those hills, and there is a serious cedar tree problem there. Um, we do have cedar trees on our place. I bought a mulcher, um, diamond disc mulcher, last May to go start taking care of, and it got so freaking dry that I was scared to run it. Um, so we haven't done much with it yet. We had uh, we had some really old cedar trees in one of our pastures. Um, I mean, I'm talking like 80, 100-year-old trees out there. Okay. They didn't spread until the last 20 years. Okay. Um, but they're, on, they're a steep slope there, and those big old trees, they just really never spread until the last 20 years. And now they're getting up on the shelf where the good grass was, and we're taking over the good grass. Um, so it was about December of 21. 
Um, we had got some snow, and I spent about a week up there cutting all the trees off the flatter of the shelf. Um, with a turbo saw, I used a grapple, and I shoved all of those trees into the big ones. Okay. Um, I like it. Thinking that we're, all right, we're going to be able to light this up. I'm going to let those smaller trees dry out. That's going to be my fuel load to scorch the big ones. We're going to improve this. And then next thing we know, it is too dry to even think about making a spark anywhere. And all these are surrounded in CRP fields. So it posed a bigger fire hazard than the risk was worth at that time. But my fuel load is still sitting there in those trees. So I'm still hopeful that one of these days we can light them up. It'll work. I, there's kind of a sweet spot, you know, after you cut them, the needles, you know, when the needles are right. red, they go like gasoline and then the needles kind of go that whitish gray. You're still going to get a lot of heat out of that, but a lot of the oils that made it really volatile and made it really hot, they're gone. Right. And, you know, I, I feel that cause there's been, we've been in that, dad and I've been in that situation where it's like, we really want to burn this and. You go out and you pile into there for three, four months and you get a whole bunch of stuff prepped and then it just doesn't rain and conditions never, never materialize. So our, our prescribed burn association, uh, we did, we had our meeting, we had our annual meeting, like first part of February this year and our president stood up front and said, does anybody want to burn? Yeah. (laughs) There were a couple people that were like, yeah, we'll burn if we get about four inches of rain in the next 30 days. And uh, we didn't end up doing nothing. Uh, We ended up having our first fire this year down in June. And that was a, that was a summer burn that was, had been on the schedule for months. It was going to happen one way or another because it was part of the uh, Kansas Grazing Land Coalition Range School. Yep. Uh, And it's, you know, fire, fire and drought are two things that I think everybody in the Plains needs to be a lot more aware of. And we were talking, we were talking just before you did your presentation a few hours ago about drought. So when I was in two weeks ago, when I went down to Stillwater for Noble's Essentials Regenerative Ranching course, you know, you want data. Those guys have all the data for all their ranches. Like they collect all the data. They don't even know what most of it means. They're just collecting a lot of it. And I think it was I think it was Steve Smith, one of our presenters. He went through the data for Ardmore, Oklahoma, and he says if you look at normal average, seven to ten years we're in drought. For Stillwater, where we where we were that day, he said, for here in Stillwater, it's five of t- it's five out of every ten years, but we're in drought. So maybe it makes more sense to rent to manage a ranch like you're in drought all the time. And then when you do get those, you know, once every third year, good years, then you can use that, you know, to build a fuel load, build some extra stockpile for lean times, instead of just trying to graze the maximum every year and ending up in drought half the time and being overstocked and hurting your pastures, which is, I think a lot where I think that's a position a lot of folks are in. Absolutely. about it this morning of realizing that the extremes are getting worse. Um, so getting through bad times, you have to take really good care of things in good times. So it's if you graze like there's a drought every day of the year, all the time, when you get to a drought, all you do is adjust numbers. So if your grazing plan is always geared towards 
drought and extremes and it rains a whole bunch, awesome. I grew enough to have a controlled burn. I grew enough to have stockpile. I let a pasture rest for 400 days just because. Because how often can you say that you let rest? You talked about it of rest and recovery are different things. So even though it's resting, if there's no rain, we have no recovery. So I like a cool season recovery period in the winter and a warm season. I want it to have a full, both growing seasons chance to express itself. And it doesn't happen very often. How much, how much rest and recovery do you like to see on your cool seasons, Aaron? And we've never really discussed this. It just, so I have one pasture that's predominantly cool season and it's small and it's got a Johnson grass issue in one corner. So it's really hard to graze without killing something really hard. So I grow it for the entire year and I graze it in February and March, right before we're getting ready to calve in May. So it's like Jake was talking, you hitting that third trimester cow. Right. That's the best nutrition I've got. And when I can go into almost waist high Western wheatgrass that has a full year of growth plus new green coming, and I just move daily moves, I'm not too scared of taking a bunch then, knowing it's going to have a whole year to recover. And, and the cows do awesome. And that pasture's gotten better. The warm seasons are increasing, which is good. That's the long term goal is diverse native pasture, right? Right. Yeah. More warm season C4s, more good, you know, desirable forbs. It's not saying I don't ever want to see, you know, buffalo grass or Bermuda right. or anything like that in a pasture. I mean, everything, a, a healthy pasture is a polyculture. I mean, it's, it's, nature doesn't plant monocultures. We do that. Oh, and we saw, so we've got two pastures now that have eastern gamma grass that came from hoof impact and rest and recovery. I'm, look, only, I'm only slightly jealous of your Eastern you, Gamma You grass. look at the historical range, we're on the fringe. It was here. It was west of us. But when you have to get the NRCS guy to come out and say, is this what I think it is? And they're, yes. <laughs> he's it's, got some growing right off his back porch that he's been taking care of for, I don't know, probably, probably pretty close to 30 years. 20. He's, Dad's just listening. He's not really. Sign language. Yeah, sign, that's okay. Or it's, I'm enjoying having him here anyway. But it's neat to see species that were here in the latent seed bank. When you finally get things right, they express themselves. And it's like, so you don't have to go spend any money. Like in old world blue stem, put a lot of pressure on it with a grazing animal, get rest and recovery, you have warm season grasses coming through it. Because it, when you allow them to express them, they outcompete it. Let, it's let's, tougher. Let's stay on old world for a second. So, again, this is something we were talking about earlier. So, several years ago, you know, we, we were seeing as it a problem. We were seeing it as a problem on the ranch. We were seeing areas that were starting to get bigger. Okay. We pulled out, we went chemical warfare route. And I think the chemical we used was arsenal because we went to a, a presentation up in Greensburg and that's what that's what on all their slides and their research looked like it worked best. You know, it, the cost for me really wasn't that much of a deal. Mm -hmm. the, the little bit that I was spraying, more of it was just time and doing it. So we we and this was all after the fire. You know, we we sprayed some sumac to try to take care of some areas with different degrees of success. 
we tried to spray some old world with arsenal. We didn't use arsenal on on sumac. That was graze on PD. Um, but we used the arsenal on the old world. And there's one spot that I'm thinking of, and I was just there this morning. Um, Dad, it's the, that little spot over in the bull pasture on the south end, that circle. So it's a circle. I don't know, probably four, five, six feet across. Sprayed it dead three years in a row, like twice a year. Sprayed it dead. I mean, if anything came up in that circle, it was nuked. I went over there this morning. There's about a six-foot diameter circle of dead weeds with a ring of old-world blue stem around it. And, you know, that's the result we've had on that for now, for three years, that we've seen for three years. It's probably going to take a while for that circle to heal up. And just the fact that, you know, that much time, that much money was spent, that much soil life, soil biology was destroyed for that long for no effective result, for, for basically zero effective result. The plant we were trying to get rid of is still there, and we're left with less than what we started with. So what, what, why? I think it comes back to human nature of we want to fix things instantly. We want the instant gratification. Like we spray something, we're thinking we spray it one time, it's, it's done. We don't think of the imbalance or the management that got us there. Like my old world blue stem is all from cost share programs from Soil Bank. When they put it in CRP mixes or in waterway mixes before they controlled those, I've got, you know, Cerisa Lespediza in a field because of it. It doesn't make sense to spray it out financially when it's a forage. Manage for what you want, right? Not for what you don't want. I want diverse perennial pasture. Right, and and people will say, oh, Ceresia is invasive species. Old world blue stem is an invasive species. What's the difference between an archaeologist and a grave robber? It's just time, baby. It's just time. <laughs> you know, and Alan Savory even says that, I think, in, uh, I think it was third edition Holistic Management audiobook. He talks about native and invasive species. I mean, cattle are an invasive species in North America. So are hogs. So are sheep, so are goats. So what are we really talking about here? Where are we drawing the line of invasive species versus native? You know, Ceresia, Ceresia is too well established in some ecosystems, some neighboring ecosystems, like especially over in the Flint Hills. They're never going to get rid of it. I've got a couple places. I've been trying to pull it and I'm not staying ahead of it. Do I have old world blue stem? Sure, I've got some of that too. But what I've learned is, you know, there's a couple weeks in September where cattle will go like it. But when they really like to eat it, it's deep in the dormant season. Like January, February, I've had great success having, you know, really using the old world hard in the winter and setting it back in the growing season a little bit. Like I've noticed it's not quite as aggressively increasing the last two years since I've had uh, some of Tim's cows up over the winter. And where he brought these cows from, that's mostly what they had to eat was old world. They come here, you know, I've got something else and they're kind of going nuts on it. But then when they see that old world in the winter, they just went nuts on it. And they didn't just take the first bite and, you know, take that top 40 or so percent. They were going back and they, I mean, they grazed it short. Like, real short. 
if it would have been big blue or little blue or something I cared about, I would have been upset they graced it that short. But since it was old world, it's like, we'll just let it ride and see what happens. Think about the tonnage you can grow with old world and how much of a mat you can lay down. Like if you need armor, most of the places that have old world had no armor, right? Yeah. Arm ground, historically overgrazed, you know, waterways. Um, doesn't mean it's perfect, but if I can cover the soil with something I can eat versus blowing dirt or a worthless plant that, you know, Johnson grass that they die in drought times. If it rains, Johnson grass is a good forage. Um, it's not a desirable for me, but it it's it, it works. It's fine when it's not a monocrop. It works until it doesn't work. <laughs> now, every, I've heard that for years. You know, okay, yeah, prussic acids, nitrates, they're a thing in Johnson grass. Totally, you know, not discounting that. I have never had a problem with it. I have. And there's plenty of Johnson grass on the ranch. But I, I think that when the animals are allowed to balance themselves out, you know, yeah, there might be enough in the pasture, you know, to cause mortality problem in 10 or 20% of the animals. Maybe that's not a problem because they've got enough other stuff to go eat to balance, to balance their diet. I think cows are a little smarter than we give them credit for. Sometimes I think they're a little dumber than we <laughs> realize too. Yeah. Johnson grass is a fun one. Um, have, have you had any success getting rid of it by grazing? If we can get the hogs there. If we get the hogs there, because we have, you know, not the wild ones. Don't want those. But uh, they eat the rhizomes and really, really do a good job rooting them up, and they don't get back as much. If we get more grass, we can choke out those species. Like you see Alejandro Carrillo in Mexico is talking grass is choking out the, the brush. Like, don't need chemical. You just need proper grazing management, and the system resets itself. I do see some of that, but there's times that I just want to run out there and spray it, knowing everything I spray it with, it comes back. <laughs> Unless you want to get into some serious stuff, and I don't want to use the serious stuff. I So I live with it, and I graze it. It's adapting. Like this year, I could have grazed it early because it rained. Wouldn't have been stressful. Now it probably would be stressed. Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't want to graze um, it today. And regrowth is worse than old growth. That shorter plant is higher. Um, it's it's a forage now. It's naturalized. It's not an invasive. We're going to live with it forever. Yeah. Just, I mean, like we're going to have to live with the old world in Ceresia. Yep. No, just, bind, just Bindweed, it's pretty natural now everywhere. Cows love forage. bindweed. Sheep love it. Yeah, it's just changing your paradigm to use what is there um, instead of seeing it as a problem. I guess when you stop listening to the guys that have something to sell you that want to manufacture problems that they have the cure for, you stop seeing them as problems. Well, and what you said about you use the chemical, the tool that they have in the toolbox for you to use, and what'd you grow? Weeds. Yeah. With a dead spot. Yeah. So now you've effectively taken out 90% of your tonnage. Yep. Where if you could use 10% of that, you were still broke even and you didn't spend any money. So and paid, the target plant's gone though, right? Right. The target plant's gone. Yep. You paid money to lose money. And you had no more forage like it's, at the That's end of the, the year. compounding, cascading of everything. 
right? Decisions have consequences. Yep. yep. Good, bad, short-term, long-term, and realizing that we want to control this system and we were not meant to control it. We're meant to steward it, right? That's the biggest humbling thing in my whole life is learning the system knows best. Yep. I don't. I, that's a great thought. So back to the whole kind of conversation about changing paradigms. So listeners have heard me talk, heard me say this before. So I've got my friend Tim down in Oklahoma. He had access to some failed wheat that they didn't get sprayed in time. So it was full of pigweeds, kochia, and crabgrass. And it was adjusted to maybe 20 bushel. So Tim hired the chopper man to come chop it, had it chopped, put it in a bunk. This has got like almost nothing in this feed. He finally got the test results back and he told me yesterday what they were. I thought it'd be higher. I was expecting like high teens for protein, but it came back at 13.5. I mean, pigweeds, kochia, crabgrass, and failed wheat, 13.5% protein. And then when I tell you he's got like $50 a ton in it, mm-hmm. I mean, I look at how many spray planes made rounds, made laps, spraying 20 bushel wheat. And, you know, I can't help but think when I see the spray plane go by and then two days later they're out either combining it or they're swathing it and bailing it as soon as the weeds are dead and dry. Did you really just spray that three days before you combined it? Did you really just spray that four, three, four days before you swathed it and put it in a bale? I, man, that really makes you wonder about, it makes me wonder about some of the hay that's moving around in the universe about, you know, how honest folks really are about yep. what's been done to it. Well, that, I just thought that was a little strange that, um, you know, We've got to cut this. We, we've got to. So, it, Tim told me that when the cutter man went out there and cut that wheat field, that parts of it made 10 ton an acre. It made between seven and 10 ton an acre. Seven to 10 tons an acre. Or you call the plane to come spray it so you can kill the weeds to cut 20 bushel wheat off of there. I'm not sure what I'd rather have, 20 bushel of the acre wheat or 10 tons an acre of feed for cows. I'd want some live wire fence, poly wire, and ring top <laughs> posts, and I'd graze that stuff standing. Absolutely. That little bit of grain, when you get that perfect manure pat with sprinkled, you know, hard-seeded wheat, I'm just inoculating the next crop. I already got wheat planted. I'm I'm with you. I was just trying to work a little more inside the scenario. I'm with you. I, mean, I just it, had to razz him a little. Graze it standing. Yeah. That's that's yeah. the way it's done. It makes so much more sense to move your cattle to forage because they move themselves anyway. I mean, if you don't pay attention to them, they'll just wander off. And it's not like a tractor that generally stays where you put it. They go where they want. It, it Hauling feed to cows just blows my mind sometimes. I mean, and, and that was something we talked about today about the difference between doing a swath grazing system or grazing standing bale grazing. I don't know. That's a stupid term. Yeah. Well, yeah. Whether you're going to bale it and haul it or you're going to stand, 
Gray's at standing. Right. His two scenarios. Can you run? Can you run through those numbers real quick without yeah. like? So these the scenarios that we talked about in my presentation today, um, and these were 2014 numbers that I used. That's kind of when I first put this together. But what we're doing is um, we are planting, and that was even a monoculture, um, forage, sorghum, cane crop, whatever you want to call it. Um, but we generally get about 6,500 pounds of tonnage per acre on our dry land. Um, our cost to establish that crop was about $105 an acre in 2014. So if you go out, swath that, rake it, bale it, gather the bales, you know, haul it to your stack yard and grind it. You just put another 100 bucks an acre into that hay. So now you have, um, you know, like 206 bucks it came to, or 207 in there. What you did in that time was you made yourself work and you spent money. If we graze that standing, I'm leaving cover on the field. We're putting manure on the field. We're putting urine on the field. We're feeding the biology. And I did that for 70 cents an animal unit a day. By the time we did that, um, putting up the hay in that scenario, we got it to the cow for $1.06 an animal unit per day. And you utilize 90% of it compared to the residue that I left on the field. Right. So even with that additional tonnage benefit to you putting up hay, it still is 36 cents a head a day more. And now you need to clean corrals. You need to run a feed truck. You need to run a loader tractor. You got to haul manure back. You got to do all of that type of stuff. Um, and I, I know it's not, you know, not everybody can graze every field. I get that. Um, but there are definitely things that we can do um, like that to save money. And part of what we were talking about when I did that, too, is I timed myself one winter, um, how long it took me to move fence per day and get everything, you know, because in the fall I always go through and I put up um, some kind of steel uh, lanes with 14-gauge electric fence wire um, and fiberglass posts. So I make a little bit narrower lane, so I only need to move about, you know, 600 to 800 feet of fence a day. Um, because we are doing this in the middle of February and I'm putting uh, pigtail or ringtop posts into frozen ground. Um, so there are days that I'm out there with a cordless drill to drill a pilot hole to be able to get that post in the ground. So I want to move a half dozen eight posts a day or something like that. Um, so we, we do our due diligence to set up to have success. But when I timed all of that, I was investing one minute per cow per winter in moving fence. Okay. I don't know anybody that can warm up a loader tractor, fill a feed wagon, feed the cows, um, get the tractor out to clean the corrals, haul the manure back for 60 seconds per cow per year. Probably not. I mean, even if you could, time-wise, you're going to spend a lot more starting up that tractor because it's not free to own and it's definitely not free to operate. No, and even, you know, at the time when we started this, I was using a Honda four-wheeler to do it. Um, Yeah, we upgraded to a Honda side-by-side. I've got a cab on it now. We've got a heater on it. Um, But even between that and all my polywire and everything, you know, we're still under $30,000. $30,000 
doesn't buy much of a feed wagon, a loader tractor, and any of that. Like, so the depreciation, the repairs, and everything, if you could even buy one for 30000 Like, where are you going to buy a $30,000 right. feed yeah. wagon? Let yeah. me know. We're talking the difference between $30,000 in equipment and a couple hundred thousand dollars of equipment. Right. Um, and your four-wheeler doesn't gel up. No. <laughs> like, if you've ever been in a polar vortex and your tractor's froze for seven days... And your bail bed won't work, and you got to feed hay. What do you do? That's and where we, with the poly wire, we knew that was coming. We set a whole week's worth. Uh, we bail grazed because we had ice, so we set up a whole week's worth and twenty minutes a day, total labor. I'm slower than Jake, and I like to look at every cow. You know, see how they graze, <laughs> what they're doing. But yeah, it's having a four thousand dollar four wheeler, a couple thousand dollars worth of fence supply. That perpetuates, you know, hopefully less at risk of our money. Right. We're young. We don't want to have machinery. Like you wanna you wanna talk a little bit about Aaron, this is to you, not not to salesman Jake sitting over there. We'll we'll let him talk about his stuff later, but the the stuff that you use, like uh the wires, reels, posts, mm-hmm. what what kind of advice do you have? Start somewhere with something, you know, whatever you can afford. Not what I was expecting, but perfect. Um, you know, we started with a couple, I don't remember what they are. They're white and green. They're okay, but the, the internal gears are pretty brittle. The drums are brittle if you set them down too hard in the cold. Those you know? are probably a stay fix. Oh, uh, so you're uh, talking reels. Reels, yeah, they, okay. they'll break. Um, the poly wire that came on them was a braided, but not... Not good. It's really brittle. So it has about a five-year life expectancy, and it's trash. Because if not, you've got to splice every you know, couple feet. It's a pain to roll knots through. You get shocked a few times. You get mad. Um, we went through the, the pigtails. I'm too much of a tightwad to buy the ring tops. So I just use the fiberglass, those small fiberglass as so, a tapered end yep that's like a it's a three eighths three eighths three eighths post with a little steel clip and on i it. have a compartment on my four-wheeler that carries a rubber mallet so i don't have to carry the little nipple thing to drive them and i don't drill any holes frozen ground if they're they changed them after covid to where they don't have a point in it, the manufacturing they have an angle and that angle is a booger to drive into frozen farm ground native range usually is not frozen very much pretty easy but with a mallet, I go through them out about a year or so, or maybe the last two, uh, but you don't tear up the top of your post like you would with your CT pliers. I use them in a in a pinch, but it's really being okay with, like we talk, the PowerFlex polywire that Jake recommends is the best, but yep. it's the heaviest. So if you're if you're doing long stretches, I'm okay with some Gallagher Turbo Wire on a couple of my reels because I got less to carry. Because some of my stuff I have to walk on. Now, are you? I I agree. The Poly Nine is heavy. I like the Poly Six. I think the Poly Six is a little little lighter than Turbo Wire. It's a little thinner. You can get just over a half a mile on a standard reel. They do not make it anymore, unfortunately. Darn. COVID knocked it out. Apparently, they don't make the PowerFlex Six anymore. No, we've not been able to get it since COVID. A le- I'm, I, I might I might have an in with the PowerFlex fence people. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. That's been requested. Okay, so. I'll, I'll see what I can do. But 
Turbo Wire, I think, is a pretty good product. I mean, it gets kind of brittle after I don't know what I've had some for five or six years. I, I think that's just going to happen. No matter what product, whether it's Poly, you know, whether it's Polybrave Six or whether it's Turbo Wire or you know somebody else's product, they all break down at time in the sun. Yep, that's a fact. I mean, whether it's five years or seven years, it, it kind of almost doesn't make a difference at this point. You know, like the the cable that I use for fence, seven to ten years, and I've got to start looking at replacement because it just you know the galvanizing wears off. It starts to rust. It doesn't carry voltage as well. It'll have to be replaced. And the same thing is going to happen with the poly wire. I mean, yeah, stainless steel never corrodes. Um, I like the two conductor. When I, when I was buying my stuff, I bought the the mixed six. I'm from you yep. actually, um, because you know I think the different conductors would help it conduct electricity. But then when you have two different metals, there's you know there's kind of different corrosion effects between the two. So. I mean, I, I think as long as we're getting five to seven years out of polywire, I think that's, you know, I think that's acceptable industry standard as long as our reels don't break. You know, right. if, if the reel doesn't break, wire can go to crap. The yeah. the guards, I can't keep any of them good on anything. I bought some metal ones to adapt on to like the PowerFlex gray reels that, I, that are bulky and break pretty easy. And all they do is make a guide wire to get it all balled up in a place. They're they're trash. I can't say I'm a huge fan of the orange plastic ones on the Gallagher reels, but I don't know. Have you seen anything better, Jacob? I don't have any. No, left. I had found some um, online. They had a steel strap and then a plastic deal. It could be the same thing Aaron's talking about. The problem was, though... Too narrow. Yeah, it's not, it's not wide enough. It only encompassed about two-thirds of the surface area of that spool. So your outside, um, about the outside sixth on each side had no wire. And that is where most of your capacity is on that reel. When the, the side of the spool starts flaring out and you have a full reel, that's where you start carrying that extra poly wire. Yeah, those are the ones we have. They don't work. Yeah, and of course I bought 40 of them instead of one. I think I bought it. So I've got six, a bunch sitting there. Six or seven and... I think there's one. And the other thing on. I didn't like about that either, um, where you bolt it on, it goes up on your handle where you hang it, hang your reel on the wire. Yeah, right. So you and it gets it in the way. Of the hook. Yeah, it gets in the way of the hook to hang it on the wire. But if your handle breaks, you can bend that strap around and they work pretty good to hang. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I think Gallagher, I think the Gallagher geared reels, I mean, it's as good as any. I'm yeah. not, I'm not real. I don't think there's a one of them that's like really stand out better than any others. I think there's some that maybe aren't quite as durable. Right. And for me, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm the same way. I think it's as durable as any of them. Um, but you know, there's a couple little features I like on it. I like the handguard on there. So when you're rolling up wire, you know, like Aaron was talking about, if you've got a splice, um, cause sometimes I roll them up when they're live and I'm walking to my anchor point. Um, when I do that, I don't want to get shocked when that wire comes around. Um, the other thing I do like, too, is the latch that they have on their hook. So you can physically latch it onto an exterior fence or wherever you're hanging it. Um, that hook will fit over the rack on my four-wheeler so I can latch it on there so I don't lose it going down the road and bust the spool up. Yep. Um, so there's, they're all, you know, within 10, 20 bucks of each other. 
um, different brands. Um, so, you know, on something like that, uh, if, you know, choose the features you like, the service you have local to get replacement parts and go with it. There's still guys that like to go to the farm store or the hardware store and get extension cord spools. Oh, I, I have, see that. I have a couple of those, but they're for like when I want to string a half mile and I'm not going to pick it up or a quarter mile like on cropland. When I want to have like a semi-permanent paddock on cropland, um, instead of having wire out there that the deer, you know, drag all over, I've got a couple paddocks that were, were on a electric fence roll and then those things have deteriorated you know five or six years out in the sun sitting there um, but you can't at some point when they break whatever you've got on there is basically trash or splice wire because it's all poof a mess i have one sitting in my front yard right yeah now. there's one grazing group i'm in on facebook and um it's more you know hobby grazers than people making their sole living on that um but there's a comment a week about what extension cord reel to use. And they're wanting to move this stuff daily. And I'm like, you know, it's just, I understand you work with what you have to work with, but man, it, it gives me a little bit of anxiety just looking at those posts. Sometimes there's something to be said about doing things on a budget. There's also something to be said about buy once, cry once. Yeah. Be efficient. Yeah. Yep. No use hitting bullseyes if you're aiming at the wrong target. Right. And what were they they're like five or six dollars for one of those reels when I bought them. So it's like I've got a few left, but they're the last thing that gets used. They're like where Jake's talking, where maybe I've only got like a six or an eight post stretch. Um, so it's just really back to your question of advice find what you're comfortable with and use it. And if it stinks, don't complain about it, get something different. And in this group of people that are doing polywire, I don't find anybody that doesn't share tips or techniques or you know, follow them on social media, find different ways to tie off reels. I made these fancy reel holder posts to be able to graze, you know, out on dead ends things. Yeah. And in our sand, this, the trident anchor point doesn't stay in the ground. So you can barely get it nailed in there when it's dry. And then a few days there, it's sand. It falls over. And it shorts out your whole fence and your whole grazing thing is you're mad. So uh, I could do the same thing with two or three fiberglass posts, and there's no shorting effect. So it's learning, trying. Adapting. Adapt. And every fence, Jake will attest, every fence is different. When you And everybody has different resource, different management, different time. But it's nice when you can run out and set you know, a week or two's worth of strips if you're not worried about the deer. And all you do is reel one up and set it down, and you're done. So once a week I set paddocks in the winter a lot of times, and hopefully that day's nice. <laughs> hopefully. That was kind of uh, a few years ago when I, did, when I was doing when I had the two-herd strip grazing. That's what we were doing is we'd go out, like we had two fence-building days a week. I had enough bat latches that, you know, we could go out and we could set up four days worth of moves for two groups. And that was that was real slick. Then, you know, then in the mornings, you go run the rest of your route, check all the rest of the cows and their water systems and their fence. And then you go to the strip grazing cows. You check in on them like, oh, okay, everything's cool. I'll come back in 43 minutes and watch the gate open <laughs> and watch them all move. And it was just, it's so cool to go sit on a hill a quarter mile away 
and watch the gate open and watch all the cows run to the next paddock. Now, granted, it, I mean, you're talking about the training. Like, you got to be very consistent for two weeks. And I think that if you're consistent for two weeks, you can teach a cow to do anything. It just takes two weeks to teach them to do it. And the good news is once you've spent that two weeks, even if you don't do it for part of the year, they relearn the system almost instantly. They know what's coming. I, I don't know that everybody wants it. I have mine trained to go under. So like if I want to move cows or have cow out, you know, in a, if she's in an adjacent paddock, she has water, I really don't care if most of them are in and a couple are out. But I can pull that fiberglass post and raise it in the air and those cows will walk right beside me, right underneath it. So they have my trust. Right. I don't want them to go over when it's on the ground. So that's where we run into sometimes a hot fence makes a good employee in the cow world, right? So getting better chargers, there's another recommendation. Don't go buy a crappy Parmac solar charger. Spend some money and get a charger that can, like I've got a Parmac sitting in the back of my truck that's 300 bucks. that's trash. Spend 700 bucks on a, a Cyclops. Jake fixed it this morning on his trip down here. They'll be, They're actually right there on the stove. I will be back in business this evening. Yeah, Aaron's energizers are actually sitting right like 15 feet away where they're on the stove in this house. Jake makes house calls. That's what I got yeah. from that. <laughs> if I would have known he was going to come over here and fix energizers all night, I would have brought a couple over. <laughs> yeah, energizers, we can come back to that later. Or I guess we'll stay there now because I don't know where else to go. Um, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about energizers, and a lot of us in this in the grazing community, we love our Taylor Cyclops energizers. You know, I'm one of them. Um, and not to take anything away from from Cyclops, which you do sell and service, uh, do you want to talk a little bit, a little bit about energizers? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've used several energizers over the past um, – and my mind, my main thing is, I tell guys, you know, I don't, I don't really care which brand you use. Um, you know, if somebody buys an Energizer from me that lives 18 hours away, yes, I'm going to do my best to service them. But it's hard for me to do that in a timely manner when we have to send something in the mail back and forth. Probably not going to make a house call for that. Probably guy. not going to make a house call. Okay. Um, That's fair. I had to pay him for this house call. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, anyways, one of my frustrations with Energizers is. There's many good brands out there that have many good features. So we're kind of trying to make a crossbred and put them all into one um, is what we're doing. The power of the Cyclops is unbeatable, um, but it is a very plain charger. The case is not very weatherproof. Um, you know, the fuse holders can get some corrosion and stuff in them that can cause some issues. Um you know, like a, a speed rat, for example, might be one of the most reliable chargers on the market. But it's going to be about 3,000 volts short on performance of a Cyclops. I don't um, think they're as fast either. Not quite as fast. And, and they have, you can slow them down. You can't speed them up any uh, with the different settings. Um, you know, Gallagher makes some really nice little compact solar units for a very short stretch. You know, if you're just wanting to keep a stack yard, you know, safe from cows or something. Every brand of charger has their own place that fits in. Water gap. Yep. So we're we're trying to come out with our own charger, um, really praying for the end of the year here. Um, 
I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on the specifics of it, but what we're doing is we're building a charger um, that will perform with a Cyclops. Um, going to have some of the flexibility of a Speedrite as far as it'll plug in 110. You can go 12 volt, or we're going to put together a plug-and-play solar system so you can put your own together, um, or you can get it from us pre-assembled. Um, you know, the first ones, I think we're going to have an LED health bar on there probably that'll, you know, have red, yellow, or green to show you how your voltage is. Um, talking with some other companies down the road, we're going to, um, work on an LCD screen. So that way we can have a readout for kilovolts, um, battery health, things like that. One of the main things though, is I don't care what brand of charger you buy. They don't agree with lightning. Um, so we are trying to make a system that is serviceable in the pasture and affordable for the rancher to have parts on hand. Okay. Um, so working on some stuff like that also, and then get it put in a good heavy duty weatherproof case with an aluminum backplate. So there's no flimsy tabs to break off your hanging location, your solar unit, moving it around or anything like that. Um, the other thing that we're working on is made in America. Um, by doing that, they will not be the cheapest charger on the market, guaranteed. We're hoping they're not the most expensive either. Eh, buy once, cry once, yeah. right? But we're making a charger that is serviceable, something that is an investment, rather than a typical farm store charger off the shelf that you buy, lightning hits it, you throw it away, you start over. Um, so that's kind of our goal with the project. Um, and we're going to start slow and get our feet wet. We're going to try and get a couple hundred out here before the end of the year, I hope. Um, and then next spring, as long as things are working, we'll go up, but we're still, um, we've got the engineering pretty close to done. We're working with a couple different companies to figure out, you know, the labor side of things, um, some stuff like that. So we've still got some things to do, but we're getting closer. We started this project about the time COVID hit. Okay. And it's probably a good time to work on complex supplies. Right. So, and we've got um, tens of thousands of dollars invested in engineering fees and things that, you know, we're to the point we're going to make it happen um, one way or another. None of it's happening as fast as we want it to, um, partially because we are trying to source all American parts. There's a couple components on the board that are not made in America. So we are going to have to import some of those. Um, the case that we're planning to use is made in Canada. Um, eventually our plan is to buy a mold, make our own case, but I really don't have 150000 sitting there to make a mold at the moment. Um, okay. The other thing that does too is instead of buying a mold and then wanting to make a change to the charger in the future, that's not in that's not slowing us down from making improvements that we need to make to this product. Right. Because we're adapting it to a case we already have or that is already produced. So if we need to get a bigger case, they make bigger sizes. Um, you know, we can do that. We haven't locked ourselves into a mold to keep us from growing as a company with technology and how all of that works. Um, so we've got some flexibility in there to make improvements and take suggestions and go down that road too. Okay. So... You were talking about user serviceability of this unit. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So um, one of the biggest issues that we run into is not everybody's an electrician. 
and that's awesome. Not everybody needs to be an electrician. If we we're all electricians, the world wouldn't go around anymore. Um, so not everybody has the the general knowledge to repair their own fence charger at their place all the time. Um, a lot of times the Cyclops issues are very simple. There's a fuse blown because it wasn't grounded properly, but the wire filament looks like it's still good in the fuse, so you have to use a voltmeter to diagnose that. Um, so, you know, just some little things like that. We're going to try and incorporate a circuit breaker in there rather than a fuse. Um, so simply, you know, flip a switch. It's going. Um, the board that we're wanting to use, as long as everything works out, um, there's not going to be hard wires on there. There's probably going to be um, two slip-on wire connectors on there, one to go to your fence terminal uh, to hook your wire up to, one for the ground, and then um, that'll be it. The rest of it will simply pull out and slide back in uh, with a new board. So trying to – I'm not going to go into a lot of details on that yet. Um, Basically what you're saying is if lightning nukes your charger, all you got to do is go out there – and pop a new board in. Yeah, take your board out, and it's a 30-second fix. Rather That's than... That's toolless. Rather than replacing the unit, taking the charger, putting it in a box, and sending it to you in Nebraska for you to work on, it, the the repair part is cheap enough that probably everybody, if you can afford to buy a charger, you can afford to right. keep a spare board a spare yeah. board on hand. And it doesn't matter what brand it is either. You start going through the warranty process, and, you know, if... Um, and some companies even, somebody brings one to me, if it's under warranty, they want me to ship it to headquarters. All of a sudden, that just costs the customer 25 30 bucks to ship it. Then we got to get it back. Yep. So there's another 25 to $30. Bucks. Um, where if we can have you a $60 replacement board that is available for purchase with the charger. And you could probably second day that for 5 bucks. Right, yeah. I mean, it might be 10 but still, you know, same thing. We're spending about the same money on the replacement part that we would just in freight otherwise. Um, the bigger picture of that is, though, you can have it on your shelf. You're not without a charger for a few days. Right. Um, that's the beauty of it. So. I mean, because the way I run things right now, I mean, I've got to have a certain number of chargers. You know, I've got some smaller chargers. I've got a Parmac that... I've got two Parmax that I love, so I like my Parmax, Aaron. If you don't want them, I'll take them. I like it till it doesn't work. <laughs> it, and But when they work, that is one of the hottest shocks. I would rather get hit by, by my six-jewel Cyclops than get hit by that nasty little Parmac. You got the Super 6 or the 12? I got the 12. Like I, I'm not even sure what it is. The mm -hmm. label has been faded off of it for 15 years. He might know what it is, but I, he probably bought it at a farm sale, and it might have been 20 years old when he That's bought. That's like it. some of those old chargers, the old battery chargers. Yeah, or even the 110s. Like when we had hogs growing up, it would throw a spark about six inches of anything living that got by it. So you had this ungrazed place inside of there, <laughs> and as as those chargers went bad. You never replaced them with anything that was as hot. Nope. I love old farm sale chargers. You can find them. Well, we were we were talking about chargers, you know, before we got started here, and Dad had some chargers that he found in what was it Germany? I think the Intel shocks, IntelliShocks. It was Premier fencing in Pennsylvania. 
Yeah, Premier One, um, but I think manufactured overseas in Germany. Yeah, probably. in Germany. Yes. Uh, those we had when I when I came back in '06, we still had three of them, and they've all since quit working, and you haven't been able to get haven't been able to get them repaired for like twelve years. Those things were, they were hot and they were fast, but they seemed to roll off power a little bit quicker than the Cyclopses do. But they were, oh man, hot <laughs> and fast. We had some fences that were 13.5, 14.5. Yeah, they'll, they'll light you up. It, it, I don't know. I thought it was that there was some kind of government regulation or foreign trade regulation that that made the chargers slow down or, or get cooler. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, there's certain parameters you have to meet because we use a low impedance fence charger. Um, a lot of people ask me to say, well, if your charger's so hot, is it going to cause a fire? No, it's not going to start a fire unless you have an electrical issue or something where the charger's plugged in that starts the fire. Um, but there is certain parameters you have to meet that you can't exceed a faster pulse um, than allowed, which is about a, a second to a second and a half in there. Um, because if you do go faster than that, then you do pose a fire risk. Um, and a lot of times that I've seen that, you know, you'll say there's a grasshopper on the wire that touches a steel post or something like that. Um, and then he creates a spark gap. So if that spark is flashing too quick and you have some dry grass near him or something, that's when we could see the fire. Okay. Um, so that's part of that. And then there's there's other regulations, too, on how many kilovolts, you know, it can put out or whatever um, for safety precautions. So there's, there's some of those things. Um, but there is still a great opportunity to build a charger that can work within those parameters and do what we need to do. Is there is there a fence charger police that's going to come I'm, I'm who checks is it he, just a regulation or is there actually any enforcement body that's actually going to come out like when you get your units or is somebody actually going to drop by with an oscilloscope and make sure you're not too hot or too fast there's a chance but i've been wondering that myself okay um he wants a souped up charger yeah. i'm saying. not saying that i am not saying that i'm just hypothetically he wants a Hemi. He's tired of just... Yeah, going. so our first prototype that we came out with, we were just trying, um, and we were pumping out like 17 kilovolts. That's a little excessive. Yeah, and you know, that that's great if you need to keep the neighbor's bowl out or something, but um, you'll regret that the minute you forget to turn that charger off and go service something on the fence or whatever. So, I, Are you going to put a remote with this? It's in the works. I was like, that is one one feature... That when you're too lazy to run to the end and turn it off and you're trying to mess with something and you get buzzed and you get mad, so you mess with it a little more and you get hit again and finally like, well, damn it, I'm going to go turn this charger off. Yeah, I'm not going to say a lot about that because we have an idea that we may be able to right. do some patent work on um, with that. But I'll say it should be a very adaptable remote if we can make everything Good. Good. work that way. So. Ken Cove had a 16-joule unit a few years ago that had a Wi-Fi board in it. Right. But I had one for a while, and I never could make it work, and I ended up sending it back. Do you have? Are you going to maybe look at doing a Wi-Fi? Yeah, so that'll all um, kind of be encompassed in the same thing here, and we might push it farther than Wi-Fi and go to cell service um, or satellite. 
um, you know, figure out what we can do there. But, you know, part of that package too would be a remote monitoring system. So, you know, you set your parameters, say that your uh, fence drops below, you know, four and a half KV, shoot you a text message. So, you know, there, you know, could be something wrong, could be out of power. Um, deer might have crossed wires, you know, just saying that, hey, cows might get out. You should come check. Which would be good when you're in like roadside grazing. Crop right. You know, you look at by the highway. highways or yep. whatever. Um, Hell, it would have just been nice yesterday because I moved cows. I went out and I checked fence yesterday morning. I moved cows and then I went and did the rest of my day. I was off the ranch by probably one o'clock. Got back out there this morning. And probably just about the time they saw my gator go over the hill, they broke through fence. And about half of them are kind of where I don't really want them, but it's the next pasture in front of them, so I guess it's okay. But it would have been nice to have gotten that alert. I could have just turned right around and gone back and right. shoved them back through the hole and fixed the wire. Um, I've been wondering this for a long time. Can you explain to me the difference between a high impedance and a low impedance charger? And it, it, what, what's the difference between the two? And why, why would you want one versus the other? I'm not going to do it justice explaining it, okay. to be honest, because it, a lot of that is... Do your best at explaining it like I'm a golden retriever. Yeah, so a lot of it's over my head. Um, but this is why we have engineers hired that know this stuff. Yes. Um, I'm just the ranch kid that knows that we need this product. So we're going to get it made. Um, but a lot of it has to do, you know, when you have the, the low impedance, so it can rob kilovolts because it is low impedance. So you don't have as much power output, but a lot of it's in the recovery side, being able to get the system energized for that next pulse. Um, and this is something that we have spent a lot of time on because you have a power bank or your, your energy coming in, whether it be 110 volt, 12 volt, hits a small transformer. Right. And that small transformer is kicking out higher voltage. It, it steps the input voltage up yep. to a higher output voltage. To run through a series of circuits to hit the main transformer in the charger. Okay. Or excuse me, let me back up. It's going from the small transformer to the capacitor, and then we're going to the main transformer. But there's a series of voltage that steps up. What happens is a lot of times with high impedance or chargers that are a little bit weaker is that first pulse will hit hard, but on the second one, you need to come back. And a lot of times the whole system cannot get re-energized to its full potential um, to put out the full power on the next pulse. So, so the high impedance, low impedance, that's more a function of recovery, a voltage recovery in between hits. From what I understand for our, from our engineers, yes. And I, I may have completely butchered that, <laughs> but I know there was a difference, and we have the engineers have changed stuff. So our charger should recover faster and put out a higher voltage under a major short or 100-ohm load. And all the testing that we've done, it shows it back at a full pulse or full power on every pulse recovering faster. That's something I've noticed between getting shocked with a speed right and getting shocked with a cyclops. The speed right rolls off power by the third shock. Right. And by, you know, by shock five or seven, like, you know, it's not that bad. And you can kind of move a little bit to kind of get yourself unhooked. 
you get tangled with one of those cyclopses, you're going to be on the ground twitching for a while. Right. And you can see it too, you know, on all the health meters on the chargers or the, you know, the flashing light on the cyclops. If you have a major short, you know, you'll see that light come on for one pulse and then it might be off for two or three. And then another pulse, bang, it's back. So part of what we're trying to do is make it so that every pulse is 100% power um, going to it. I've noticed that every once in a while when I go test a fence with my tester. Now, we can talk about testers later. Um, But some of that voltage fluctuation, like when you're checking your fence, if it goes like 86, 88, 84, 88, 84, 88, I guess that indicates that there might be something starting to go bad inside the charger. Um, possibly. The other thing, though, that we have to deal with is as the power moves down the wire, it ricochets off the back and comes back to you. Because it's so, a wave. Yeah. So then we get a little bit of a static effect on that tester somewhat. Okay. Um, but if you notice, normally if you stay for about five pulses, the first three or so it's going to bounce around and then it'll level out. So that's a lot of the same thing. Um, you know, a lot of times when I go look for faults or something, you know, say we're just making a top barbed wire hot that's not insulated. We're just on wood posts. And, you know, we're losing some voltage somewhere. So then I go start putting my tester on everything, and a lot of stuff will read like 1.2, 1.3 kilovolts, even though there is no energy in it. Right. That's because we're in close enough proximity to the hot wire um, that it is still picking up. Like a little voltage that leak. voltage, yeah. So there's there's some stray voltage that the charger or that the testers pick up. Um, they're not 100 percent accurate, but man, I'd hate not to have one in my toolbox ever again. I I guess for me, as long as the fence tester is like, as long as it's within 10 percent and consistent, I don't care if it's accurate. Right, just and be within 10 percent and consistent, because you know to keep them in effectively, 7,500 to 10,000 is the range. Yep. And if you can't maintain 7,500 volts on your fence, 7.5 kilovolts for those of you like to say, say it like that. Um, I could even buy as low as 6,500 when it's dry, not having problems with the fence. Yep. You get 5,000, that's a metal, 5,000 or less is a metal short to ground. Between five and seven, that's probably just grass or maybe you've got a wire laying down, but under five, you're definitely definitely full grounded out. Yeah, at least with a Cyclops charger. Every brand varies a bit on that. Um, and actually, when I was repairing Aaron's charger, I've got a tester to simulate putting a load on the fence. So a 500-ohm load is just going to be, you know, like a dirty fence line, got a few weeds in it, whatever. A 100-ohm load is like the insulator came off several posts. Um, you've got a major load. So when you test different brands, um, you'll start out with a different kilovolt reading on what they put out um with nothing then it's going to drain each one of them down lower um and i'm not going to name brand names on this but um that's okay i know (laughs) yeah so one some of them um when i put the 100 ohm load on it drops down to 1.9 kilovolts some of them stay up at five like you were talking about so a lot of that depends on the brand so that's when we start looking at the amp draw on the fence tester of, of how much the charger's pulling out of the battery. No, the amp draw on your fence. So you're reading okay. your other reading on the fault finder there. You're going to have kilovolts and amps. 
So the kilovolts is the current in the fence, the amps, um, it's showing your amp draw to the ground system, basically. Um, so how, how big of a short do you have? My general rule of thumb for customers is as close to 10 on the KV and under 10 on the amps. So kind of over and under is my general rule of thumb there, and I tell them all it's going to depend on the size of charger, it's going to depend on your fence, it's going to depend on you know insulators or, or whatever your system looks like. Um, but that's a very good you know rule of thumb to stick to and adapt from there as you gain time and experience with your fence tester. Something I don't always understand with electric vent. Okay, there's a lot of shit I don't understand, especially when it comes to electrics. Is I'll go check my voltage right at the energizer, and it'll be say ten thousand. Like that's great. And then I'll go a mile and a half away, and check the end of the run, and it'll be like thirteen two. Yeah, that's that bounce back off the end that I was talking about. Okay. Yep. And you'll see, too, sometimes if you've got a short on the fence, or I shouldn't say a short, but, you know, heavy weed load, say, in the middle or something. Test it by the charger, you're going to be at 10. You might be at 8 in the middle, and you could still be at 12 on the end opposite the charger. Um, so they will do crazy things like that. And the, the fault finders are a very good tool. Sometimes they make more questions because we don't understand all of that, and it doesn't say it in the manual, not that any of us would read the manual anyways. <laughs> They come with a manual. Right, yeah. <laughs> I was like, um, I don't have one yet. I'm still a, a little handheld, you know, wireless you, one. You, you're still licking your fingers and touching or it? Or a claw hammer on a T-post. And you just gauge by how big the spark is. Yeah, it's hot enough. Or yep. I got a short somewhere. Yeah, so I what, I, what I tell a lot of people, you know, in those instances, they make a lot of questions. But it's a tool that we know we've got a guideline. Um, so use it for what it's worth and... I'd hate to be without one still. So, There's nothing wrong with using a fault finder and only looking at the voltage because there's plenty of guys that use a claw hammer and never pull a nail. Right. You know, and like right now, we have a heavier weed load than we have ever had on a fence before. Um, so my fence voltage is lower than normal. And we've got some that are down to 4.8, you know, 5.0 right in there. And I've been up and down the fence several times and we don't have, you know, any major shorts other than weed draw. I'm, um, I'm glad to hear you say that because I've done nothing but fight low voltage on fence for the last three weeks. Yep. And finally I was like, you know what? Screw it. The cows have grass over their backs. They're eating these weeds that are causing the problems. They're not getting out. As long as I stay on top of my rotation, we don't have any issues. All it is for me is that I can see that number that says it's really not high enough, but we're not having any management issues. So until a management issue arises, um, I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah, we've been going around with the mower on the skid loader and trying to knock down some weeds so when we do get a good heavy snow, all the fence isn't buried. Um, and the voltage is slowly coming up as the weeds mature and start to dry out. So, you know, but like the other day... Um, I just moved some steers, and I actually put a bigger charger on there. I went from a 2.5 joule to an 8 joule just because of the weed load. Um, the steers were in a new pasture they hadn't been in. I was going to be gone, and I didn't want there to be a problem. So we put the bigger charger on, and I, I put my fault finder on there, and it says 72 amps. I'm like, Ooh. okay, we've got an issue. <laughs> yeah, that's so, a big ground. Yep, so some deer had ran through and twisted the, the top wire that was hot in with the second wire. So 
you know, a lot of times right now we're still seeing 20 amp draws with the weeds and stuff. Um, but just to drive the point again, the tool told me what I needed to know. Um, we had a short there and we got it fixed. So we went from like, you know, 2.3, um, up to six once we fixed that. So, um, you know, it, it's nice to know those things. And I didn't have to, um, where the charger was, it's by a well. We've got an overhead wire that went about 50 yards to a fence. It went up where that overhead wire was hooked. It said the shortest to the left-hand side. We've got about 100 yards of fence on the left-hand side. So, I mean, it was, you know, 30 seconds to go find it. And Because otherwise I would have headed the other direction if I didn't have that fault finder because that's where 90% of the fence is. I guess I'd, I'm a little different. A lot of ours where energizers are, they're kind of at a watering center. So they will be, you know, two, three, four, five or nine radial fences off radiating out from there. So a lot of times they're kind of at a center or I can go to a water center and I can disconnect fences and see where my problem is. Right. Yep. I've never, I've never learned to trust the arrow on the fault finder. I mean, yeah, obviously bigger number on the big, you know, big number on the big screen larger the problem the arrow always seems to like i've never seemed to pay attention to the arrow it's like okay that's what it is i go to i go to my i mean it's effectively a bank of switches you're isolating circuits to see where your problem is i'll just turn off a fence and see how much voltage recovery i get by isolating sections of fence and for the for the arrow to be effective it can't be on a multi-wire fence that is hot because otherwise that short circulates as the power is circulating in there. So that's, that's why it doesn't yeah. work for me. So as I'm long as it is a single strand with a dead end going away without any other wires coming off of it anywhere. Well, Dad, that explains why the arrow never made any sense to me. <laughs> that will tell you where it has to go. But yeah, in an in a instance like that... Um, that makes it trickier. And I've told a lot of people, you know, because if somebody, sometimes I'll get a call, you know, saying, hey, we got a 50 amp draw. We've got this three wire high tensile fence. We can't find anything. I say, okay, it's going to be a pain, but you got to isolate each wire individually to use the arrow function. Um, but, you know, on something like that, it's kind of a, a last resort to start disconnecting wires and isolate each one single. Um, so what we've done is either use cutout switches or the major fence companies hate that I do this because they say it's not right that we don't use an insulator. But um, on our water traps and stuff, we've got either hedge posts or creosote wood posts. I use a gate handle, um, but I use a galvanized or a nickel-plated eye with a lag on it. I lag straight into the post to hold it, because when we rotate and have a gate open, if you have a wire loop tied on there, the cows rub it down if that one's not hot. Yeah. So that's been my solution to that. And then I just wrap electric fence wire around that tight, loop it around to whatever wire we need to go to. So we can just put a second hook on there that's dead and not not tied to anything. So that gate, I can still have it up. Cows don't get out. I can hook it on the hook that is dead um, to isolate issues like that. It never, never would have thought about a freaking lag bolt in your post or to hang a, hang a gate. Yeah, on that was just one trap. of those things that dawned on me one night. So I'm like, all right. That's why he's got the business. I guess that means yeah. we're taking a gate handle to the hardware store, and I'm going to see which one it fits in because <laughs> not all gate handles fit in the right ones. Yeah. And I love the Dare old Ironside gate handles. 
Um, is that the black handle? Yes, solid, the black one with the solid steel tube inside. Barely any flex. Yeah, because anything that has a spring, it blows out. Yep. <laughs> so yep. those have been very reliable gate handles for us. That's what I use. So I've sourced the lag screw eyes that fit that one right. So there's a lot of things we do off the cuff um, on our place that are not kosher to the fence world because we're real, real world ranchers ourselves, and we know what it takes to get by and what's going to last or not last. I, you were talking earlier about, you know, just energizing a top barbed wire on an all wood fence. Like, you know, to us, since we're here, you know, we, we've seen Steve Kenyon do that for years and it works just fine. But there's probably a lot of people in the world that when you tell them, hey, I'm going to go hook up a charger to barbed wire on a wooden fence, they'll say, well, that'll never work. That'll never work. Yep. Well, you've never tried it. And here's my hot take on it. So everybody says, you're going to leak voltage. Fair enough. We can put up a better ground system. We can put up a big enough charger to overcome that. Um, the other thing is, say it rained and the posts are wet. Yeah, we'll drop a couple thousand volts. But that animal's grounded better than they've ever been before either because the ground is wet. That post is going to dry out at the same rate the land does. Yeah, in the rain, you need about six volts to shock a cow. Right. So everybody, uh, I mean, it's just like I talk about in my talk about the systems approach of everything. A fence charger is a system. It's a very simple system in a complex box. All it is is touching positive to negative, and it will shock you in between. No different on the fence. Um, yeah, you might have some voltage draw and things happen when it rains. Um, we don't use hardly any insulators because insulators are the number one failure point in an electric fence. We try to use a non-conductive post, tie a wire straight around it. Even in all of our cross fences, they are single wire high tensile with fiberglass posts. We have wood corner posts. I take two wraps with the high tensile wire. I tie straight to it. We go on. I've only had one wood post in the f almost 14 years I've been home be a dead short. Yep. And it's in an old buffalo wallow, and it holds water for a long time. And when you go to find the first time, only time, I found the dead short. Like, charger says hot to here, dead on the other side. Go up to the post, put my hand on the post, wham. Yep, and I've seen those <laughs> like, too. I mean, we had... Pull the staple... Fix the problem. Yeah, we had a couple that did that too. And I'd used a railroad tie as a corner post one day, and it was um, one of them that had, uh, you know, metal, um, kind oh. of an S-shaped metal pounded into the end to hold the post together. Mm -hmm. Well, well, we presented ourselves with a problem there. Um, one of the other common misconceptions too is that, you know, you talk about a barbed wire fence. Well, down, we're down here in T-post country right now. Yes. So people say, well, I'm just going to hook onto the second or third wire for my ground then. Because that'll ground the fence out if, um, you know, if, if there's not an insulator on the T-post. Well, the problem with that is every post either has good paint or rust on the bottom. There is no in-between, and both of those are an insulator to a good ground. Yes, it is effective enough to ground out your fence, but as far as having the grounding capacity, you need to run a charger. It's not going to cut it. 100%. One thing that I have found that's excellent for grounding if you've got a power line running by, at, at least down here, every other power pole 
has a ground has a has copper wire going all the way from the top all the way to the bottom of the post and it's not just a wire that goes to the bottom of the post and stops it's coiled and everything it's coiled underneath you want to talk about a good ground yep my my only word of caution for you on that ground um i've had a couple chargers come in that were grounded that way when I, that, I don't do that with my good ones. Yeah. <laughs> when that ground wire does its job, its job is to take the lightning voltage to the ground. Yep. So if you're grounded on the post that takes the lightning voltage, you may bring your charger back to me in a five-gallon bucket full of pieces, or the case may be melted or whatever. Where I do that, it's a charger. It's a farm store charger mm-hmm. yep. with a solar panel and a battery in a toolbox. Like It's yeah. one of the ones I put together and... If I had to go replace it, it'd probably just be yep. a few bucks and at the farm store. We've done it before. Um, one thing that I have started doing to try and get away from that, because like with the Cyclops, it you know just any little static shock will make you blow a fuse then from that. Yeah. Um, so I try and put a ground rod in, because that's where my power source is, is at the pole. So even if I can just put a ground rod in 10 feet away from that pole, we're still talking the same energy field for the ground, that 10 feet is enough that when the lightning hits, it shouldn't harm the charger. We should just blow the fuse and the charger will be safe. So. Had a buddy that was grounding a plug-in, 100-mile dare, you know, six-joule charger to a power pole on, you know, like on a Monday. On Thursday, the phone company shows up at his house and is like, is that your charger? <laughs> yeah, why? He's like, whatever day you plug that in, nobody south of here has phone service. <laughs> and it was causing interference to where he could put you know put his deal in the fiber octave and listen and you unplug the charger and the signal is going through and you plug it in and you're so they made him put a ground rod they're like don't ground the, that yeah, pull and, and that was there was something fishy in that pull they're getting feedback and that's where you were talking earlier like I don't understand everything about it even though it's simple <laughs> there's still times you're like. I don't understand. And we've but. seen a lot of um, grounding feedback on fence chargers, too. Even There's some of them that even if you have a battery charger and you touch that negative post on the battery, you can get a little bit of a shock. Sometimes my ground rod will show that it's every bar hot. And I'm like, I don't have enough ground or I'm too close. Yeah, or- either you don't have enough ground or you, you've got a big enough amp draw on the fence that's returning it to the ground system. Because that's always a surprise when you're like, pulling apart the weeds and you hit the ground rod and you get yeah. nailed and like yeah and one thing um talking about ground rods so my business partner came up with an idea so we just made a new ground rod um that i think is going to be pretty handy for a lot of people because there are a lot of people that are moving chargers frequently um you know putting ground rods in on rented ground or something you may not have long term and they are not fun to pull out of the ground once you put them in um so we've got a new stainless steel ground rod with a drill bit TIG welded onto the end of it. Okay. Um, so, and that bit, it's about a three-quarter inch bit. So you put it on your cordless drill and you run, these are a four, is, four and a half foot rod. Is it more like an auger to pull it into the ground or a screw to make a hole? It's well, It does both. It's kind of more of an auger to pull it in the ground. It goes in the ground pretty easy, but then you can reverse it to run it back out. So there's no pounding, any of that. We've got the top of it threaded with a um, kind of a star knob with a nut. So there's a jam nut on there, two washers to wrap your wire around, sandwich in between two washers, tighten that down. 
and all of that's down below where your drill is, where your drill chucks onto the top. So there's no issues there. Um, one thing about it, so a lot of people either use the galvanized rods or the copper rods. There's a great debate between the two of them, which is better. I don't care. Just use them. <laughs> I, They're all better than a rod post. The hmm. debate is is how long they last before they corrode out. Right. And like it's it's not a problem. So don't worry about it. No. Just go put the damn rod in the ground. Um, so one thing about the stainless steel is we've we've got the instruments to test what we need to on the ground rod to see if they're doing their job. Um, the thing I like about stainless steel is, you know, you go buy a copper rod, you've just got a couple mils of copper on the outside of that steel rod. Mm-hmm. So if you nick it or something and get rust started, it can corrode through there over time and, you know, whatever. Um, personally, I've never had a ground rod go bad. Um, that's been in long enough to, that I've noticed a difference. I I don't think any of ours have gone bad. There's probably some that he put in, you know, 25 years ago. Yeah. Now, granted, you get into some nastier soil, higher water, you know, content in the soil or something, you know, maybe you'll see some of those. Um, they just go beat another one in six feet away. Yeah. But what I'm getting to on the stainless steel one is we're using a solid stainless steel rod. So if you do get any corrosion or anything on the outside, just take a flap disc or a wire brush blow it off and it's solid stainless steel underneath there. It's not like a galvanized or copper rod where you're going to wear that coating off. Right. So it is a little bit more money up front um, for the system, but you've got a lifetime ground rod then, and there's a warranty to back that. Good stuff. You're what, how long, how far away are those? You think we've got the rods now? Oh, well, I might have to try one of those. I, yeah, uh, we actually just got them about a week ago. I just put one of the actual production ones in to test it on some sheep fence before I left. Um, but I'm hoping once we get back, I can get the wife out there. We can do a grounding demonstration video showing how to put them in and out. Um, and then we've, we've got a, a card made that goes with it for all the different guidelines um, of how many ground rods you need for, you know, what size charger and everything like that. Okay. But trying to figure out a portable ground system mm. that is effective um, has been a struggle, honestly. I mean, so. it's it's been something that's been needed for, I don't know, I was looking for one 15 years ago. Right. You know, and yeah, there's the little, you know, three-foot T-handle ground rods and stuff, um, which work, but if you start trying to run a 12-jewel charger or something, that doesn't you, work. Know, you don't want to go pound in 10 of them. Or if it doesn't rain, yeah. and you get dry past that. Yep. So your ground's not a thing. And the other thing these do, too, you know, putting in that three-quarter inch hole, um, soil falls back in around it. But it gives you a good core to dump water into also because the rod itself um, only needed to be about three-eighths in diameter to accomplish what we needed to do. We didn't gain anything by going up to a half-inch rod on this system as far as the grounding ability. So now we've effectively made a trench, too, that you can take, you know, even just uh, one of these, you know, water bottles is enough water to do what we need to do because you have a hole around that ground rod the top foot or so, the dirt hasn't filled in. So right. you dump a little bit of water in there and you've effectively put that in your grounding zone right away. That's something that a lot of people thought last year. Absolutely. Is not being able to keep fences hot. And I can't, it seemed like every other day somebody was like, I can't keep my fence hot. There's no faults. It just, it just won't have any power. Like, yeah. And I was to the point of, I mean, seriously wanting to shut my phone off a year ago because mm-hmm. everybody's calling me saying I need a bigger charger. So I'd love to sell you one, but I'm not going to fix your problem. You could have just changed your voicemail greeting to, if you're calling me to buy a bigger charger, 
take a five-gallon bucket and go irrigate your ground rods yep. and call me tomorrow. And so what we ended up doing on a lot of them, um, and most of it was, you know, small calves getting out. Um, but unfortunately, you know, they're getting out on crops or on roadways or, you know, posing a hazard that way. Um, and there was guys grazing a lot of CRP and different things, so just a lot of single-wire fences. So one of the best solutions that we came up with for most of those calves and stuff is I told the guys, I said, I understand it's going to be a pain to go around a second wire. But you run that second wire and hook it straight in with your ground system on the charger if you're grounded properly. That solved 99% of problems right there. And I had to do that um, with some fall calves a couple of years ago. They were wanting to, they were ducking under the single wire um, and they were rubbing on it, but it was just so dry the fall of 21 that we weren't getting them shocked. So we ran a, sick, a second wire, and we only put it, you know, about eight inches below, low enough that they wouldn't duck under it to make them put their head between the two, and it took one day, and we were trained. We were good to go. But if you pull it, if you put it in with your ground system that the charger is grounded to, that's like the same thing as walking up to that charger and touching the fence and the ground terminal at the same time. For reference, anybody listening, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> it is. I was working on a charger a while back and had a brain fart. Um, was testing the capacitor because uh, I thought we had a capacitor issue. Well, I hooked one lead back up, not two, and it was the positive lead. So I fully energized the capacitor and did not take the charge off of it. So I had my pliers in there digging around. Oops. That went through me. And just on a two and a half joule, it melted the corner of my pinky nail off. Ow. where I connected it. And That's where you I, showed me today. You're like, make sure you yeah. discharge the capacitor before you do this because it will bite you. And it will hurt. <laughs> I got bit last week. I was working on some fence that I was pretty sure was unhooked and turned off and I'd been working on it and I was kind of working my way back to the charger and I found a dead short and I picked the fence up and then I touched the wire again. And I was laying on the ground. <laughs> Some days you're the fault finder, aren't I mean, you? <laughs> 13.5 out of a five-jewel cyclops will definitely wake you up. Yep. Uh, it kind of ruins my day when That's that like happens. there's two types of people on getting shocked with electric fence. Ones are like, damn it, that sucked. I'm going to keep working on this. Hopefully I don't get shocked again. And the other person is like, ruins their entire day. They're in a bad mood because they got... Just thinking of people I've worked with, there's some ranchers. Once they're shocked, they are done. They're, they're grumpy, and it, it does hurt, but uh, it's like they're mad. Oh, it makes me mad. It makes me mad, mad at the world, <laughs> mad at myself. But it's never, I've never gone home after getting shocked. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, just, just shake it off and keep working. I mean, there's, there's shit to do. Yep. So. Well, I don't want to keep you all day. Love the conversation. So why don't you talk a little bit? Tell us why you started Livewire and what and what Livewire LLC is all about. So Livewire, um, it was a completely accidental business, honestly. Um, when I came home in 2013, um, you know, we were trying to increase our grazing intensity. I went to the local farm store, and we got some pigtail posts, we got some poly wire, and we got a reel. Literally, that about ruined our whole grazing career because we bought junk supplies to start with. Nothing worked, nothing lasted. It was just a bad experience. Um, then, you know, when I was first home, I bought three um, 
farm store, uh, you know, supposedly 100-mile solar energizers, you know, over 600 bucks a piece. By the end of the grazing season, none of them worked. So that was kind of, um, you know, I told that. I said, I, th- I think I can make something better. So I started experimenting, and, you know, I mean, it's a simple solution. I thought, well, a solar panel will charge a car battery, a car battery will run a fence charger. That's what we're going to do. Seems pretty easy. Yeah, so I built some for myself, and I figured out it's not that cut and dry. There's a lot of, you know, little things that we've had to do over the years. And luckily, I have some very awesome customers that stood by my side while we made those tweaks um, and got things figured out. Um, But, you know, after I made those first couple, then some neighbors saw them, and, you know, I'd put a picture of one on Facebook or something, and all of a sudden, I got orders coming in for these. So I told my wife, I said, well, you know, I guess we're going to try and come up with a name for this. And... So, you know, I was trying to name this thing forever. And then finally one day I'm like, Livewire is kind of a cool name for that. Um, so we got into building chargers. And then, you know, I'm like, well, if we're going to do this, I can't keep ordering, you know, every charger online or something to try and fill these orders. So we got in touch with, a, um, you know, with manufacturers to figure out who our wholesalers and distributors were in our area on different brands. And then um, it's grown more than I ever would have imagined. Um but since that, just my passion for grazing, and now I've got a passion for the equipment to do it because that was our biggest hurdle was finding the stuff that was worth using and worth spending money on. Um, a lot of reps are pretty upset with me from the different companies because, you know, I love a Gallagher geared reel with PowerFlex poly wire and a Zammer handle from Speedrite on it. It's, it's That's kind of a winning setup. Right. The, the reps from the different companies don't want to see that, though, because that's not all their product. No, they want Gallagher wants turbo wire, and then they right. want that stupid orange curly Q handle. They yeah, got. that doesn't that pass doesn't anything. do anything. Yeah, it doesn't do anything. I I keep those in the back of the side by side to grab a wire if I need to for just a handle to grab a hot wire or something. Um, so that doesn't please a lot of reps. But I told them I said, come out with something better. I'll put all yours on it. That's my challenge to you. <laughs> Let's advance this. Let's figure it out. Make an equivalent product, and I'll sell it. Right. So, and, you know, we've we've had that argument with chargers on different ones and different things. Um, so, you know, we've, we've sent ideas to companies to try and change things, and, you know, they say, well, our mold's made for this. All right, that's fine, you know, or, or we don't want to do that. And I said, okay, um, that doesn't bother me. But if it's something I think there's a need for, we're going to start making it. Um, because that is pretty much my passion in life now is grazing and the equipment to do it right because there's too much native rangeland disappearing every day from housing, you know, urban sprawl, um, being tilled under for farmland. Um, trees. Trees. Poor grazing management destroys a lot of native rangeland. Yes, 100%. Um, so there's a lot of things like that, that it's my goal to make it easy and affordable to graze for people so we can get things turned around and be a little bit more effective um, and efficient on what we're doing. Well, for one, I was, I, I was there 10 years ago. I know what it was like trying to find stuff. Like 10 years ago, there wasn't Gallagher geared reels. No, there, there wasn't. There wasn't turbo. There wasn't even turbo wire, much less Polybraid Mix 6. There was no Brian geared reel then. Yeah, there was almost nothing. And it's not a bad reel. There's been some improvements that have been made that I prefer. So, and and posts like yep. even posts ten years ago were very hard to get. And 
just where we've come from 2013 to 2023 with the supplies that are available with, you know, whether you're, whether you're a ring top guy or you're a pigtail guy or you're an O'Brien's post guy. We didn't have those 10 years ago. We've all got them now and it, they're so good. And I really appreciate what you've done by, by creating Livewire LLC. And it's a great resource for great resource for a lot of us to be able to go and get the things that we need, the equipment that, that we've all been looking for for so long, all in one place. Yep. And it's, you know, I'm more than willing to talk to anybody too about their specific situation and what products might work there. Um, you know, there's times people call me and I'll tell them, I said, I don't have the product you need. You need to talk to these people or whatever. Um, I'm just humbled that people call me. I don't need to make every sale. I'm more than happy to educate somebody, um, for the greater good to benefit everybody. Um, but yeah, and we're always open to, um, suggestions on new products. Um, we're working on a few things to get rolling. I'm always open to, you know, if there's somebody in your area that is awesome to do business with, we'd love to get them, you know, set up so we can have our product local to you. And that way you don't have to call me when I might be 19 hours away, um, to get that product. So there, I think the gates are going to open with a lot of opportunity coming up here to service a greater area than we are now. Awesome. So your company is Livewire LLC. Yep. Where can we find you? Um, Livewire Fence Supply on Facebook um, or Jacob Miller. You can friend me too. I post a lot of our grazing stuff on there. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Livewire Fence. And then uh, I'm going to make us commit to this now by saying this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, my friends at home and my wife joke and they call me Mr. Livewire um, just because I'm always wearing a Livewire hat or wherever I go, I'm Mr. Livewire. Um, so we've been thinking pretty hard too about maybe making a Instagram handle as Mr. Livewire or something, and then doing some more educational stuff, um, just as far as how I use these products in my everyday, what economic benefit they have to us, how they've made our life easier and not even about the products, but just, you know, what kind of a sheep wreck are we having today? Um, why are we grazing this? What are we supplementing with? You know, whatever. So maybe going to try and do a little bit more education along with things in the future here. I think Mr. Livewire is a superhero costume. We can make that happen. I, th I think Mr. Livewire <laughs> is your superhero alter ego, <laughs> and he has to have a costume. Yeah, I'm going to have to work on that. My vertical is about 1.27 inches, um, so if we're actually going to get the cape flying, we might need some motor power behind it or something. Oh, but... no, no capes. No, no capes. capes. No right, capes. Perfect. Capes, capes get caught on stuff. They get you know dragged into rotating machinery. Not no. all heroes wear capes. Huh? Not all heroes wear capes. Awesome. All right. Anything else? Thanks for having us, and thanks to uh, Comanche Pool for having me come down. Um, always fun when I can go see some new country that I haven't seen before, uh, meet new faces, and hopefully educate one person, maybe I, two. That'd be awesome. I, I think you might have got two today. Hopefully you got one or two yesterday, and you know that's four more people that might make a difference. Yeah, it's always cool. Like I just had a Snapchat a little bit ago. Um, customer at home, his son's going to school at Alva. Didn't know he was down there. Um, so it it's always neat when you, you're you able to drive down the road to go to places. You see your charger sitting on the side of the road. You get feedback to home before you get back. Um, that's always just a humbling feeling to, to know that you are starting to make a difference and can help somebody out. So. Well, very cool. I'm uh, glad you came down, and maybe next time 
we'll be able to kidnap you and take you about 35 miles to the east and show you our place. Yeah, we're going to do a ranch tour one of these days. Oh, you, you got to see some pretty good country over here on, on Aaron's farm. Yep. Aaron's a pretty good guy. He's got an, He knows what he's doing. Oh, yeah. I just know I don't know as much as I think I know. Every day I learn more. So as I'm enjoying getting educated daily. So, Michelangelo, you know who he is. He was being interviewed on his 89th birthday. And they asked him what was driving him. And he says, Ancoro in Paro. That is Latin for I'm still learning. Never stop. Never stop learning. I I can't beat that, so we're just going to go. Have a good week, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.